Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jonathan Judge. Jonathan is a senior member of the Baseball Prospectus Stats team and one of the people behind the creation of DRA. You can give Jonathan a follow on Twitter at BachLaw, that's B-A-C-H-L-A-W. That's probably BachLaw as you are a lawyer. Jonathan, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, you're no problem. Jonathan, tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. You know, that's really interesting. I, I was a big baseball fan as a kid. I, it sort of faded a little bit uh, as I became an adult. And then over the last five or six years, the interest really started um, picking up again. And I started getting really interested in statistics, which I had never really studied or paid any attention to before. And so I ended up uh, watching a lot of baseball and sort of simultaneously re-educating myself on baseball and educating myself for the first time uh, on statistics, and those two have sort of reinforced each other uh, as we've uh, come over the last uh, year, year or two here. How did you initially discover advanced metrics? I was late to the party. I think we all grew up with wins and RBI and the traditional counting numbers. How did you discover advanced metrics, and how did the opportunity at BP come about? Um, I had kind of discovered them because I could see that people who were blogging about baseball were using them. And so I would go over uh, to Baseball Prospectus or I would go to Fangraphs or Baseball Reference and I'd say, oh, that's what that is. And then I started to read the explanations for why people thought advanced metrics were necessary, that there was just so much noise in baseball that you have to be awfully careful to try and separate what people really contributed to versus what happened to occur when they were at the plate or whatever, or sitting in right field. And so that kind of started it. And then, um, so I started, you know, using a lot of the common ones uh, in, you know, FIP and fielding independent pitching and things like that. Um, And uh, as I got more and more involved in the statistical studies and um, started doing more and more writing, mostly at like the hardball times, um, Harry Pavlidis, Uh, who is sort of the director of technology at BP, had been trying for a few years, I think, uh, at least for some time, to find somebody, anybody who would put together a model for catcher framing. And he had been turned down by a lot of people who were certainly far more qualified than I was. And I think he was kind of getting to the point of saying, uh, well, let's see what he does if he wants to do it. And so he saw one of my articles we actually live about a mile away from each other, which is an uh, amazing coincidence. And uh, we went out and talked about it. And he said, um, you know, here are a few approaches of people who have tackled the issue. Um, what do you t- pick the one that you think is best and let's talk about how to do it. And so that was how I started with BP. And one of the articles that, we, that he gave me was by Max Marchi, who is now with uh, the Cleveland Indians. And Max Marchi was talking about this thing called mixed modeling, which I had never heard of before, which isn't unusual because I was, hadn't heard of a lot of things at that point. And the more that I studied this topic, the more it suddenly came to me that this was a, a sort of breakthrough way of looking at baseball that um, really solved a lot of problems that I that previously were sort of preventing us from running the sort of regressions and other things that statisticians would normally do. And so catcher framing was really the first thing to tackle, and we sort of learned how it works through that and then 
uh, starting after Catcher Framing, and then we started going in onto other projects, and that's when it really started to explode into uh, a variety of different metrics at BP. So you're one of the people behind DRA, which we'll talk about as well. But since you were just talking about the the pitch framing metrics, let's start there. You're starting basically using a mixed model that you were not really that familiar with how to do. How do you take the data and actually translate that into a metric? What we basically do, the major benefit that a mixed model can do is that it, it does two things. It allows you to basically control for other factors. So you can say to a mixed model, also called a multi-level model and other things, but mixed model is common. You basically say to it, look, I want you to take all of these plays with these balls and strikes. I want you to take the location of the pitch, which is important. And then from there, I want you to keep track of who the pitcher was, who the catcher was, who the umpire was, who the batter was. And what it does is it sort of keeps track of the average effect uh, of all of those people. And so you can, uh, in the course of getting your model, which tells you all sorts of things, one of the things it sort of keeps track of is, you know, what was the effect of this person being present in, um, uh, you know, over time in, uh, in a pitch framing situation. And that is something that was really difficult to do just from raw numbers because nobody in their mind can sit there and say, well, you know, they were playing in right field for 100 games and then someone else was there, so I have to kind of account for that, um, that sort of thing. And uh, the mixed model does that all very uh, automatically. The second thing that it does is that it um, does something we call uh, shrinkage, which is extremely important uh, from a statistical standpoint, but I don't think it's talked about a whole lot. I think um, many listeners may be familiar with the concept of regression to the mean, which is often used to refer to the fact that people who do incredibly well, unexpectedly so one year, tend to kind of fall back the next year uh, and vice versa. And what the mixed model does is it integrates a lot of that uh, into it, a lot of the same principles into its modeling. So it basically asks asks itself how much better somebody is than the typical person at that position. And you're sort of rated above or below the typical. And because you are always being compared to the average ball player at your position, um, to the extent that we're finding an effect, it's usually an effect you can trust uh, much more so than uh, you can say your run-of-the-mill list of strikes you got uh, or that happened to be there while you were at the plate because it's been sort of um, statistically managed and shrunk toward the mean. How many wins can a great framer add a year? The very best catchers, um, we could see up to three wins, um, maybe uh, approaching four, I've been told, for peak Jonathan Lucroy. Um, But uh, a good framing catcher, we're usually talking about uh, one to two wins, which is certainly no small matter. Uh, It's a a very, very, very... um, uh, fruitful area to spend your time in. And frankly, um, pitcher framing is far more valuable than a lot of the other sort of ancillary skills that we've more associated with catchers, such as base stealing or blocking pitches in the dirt. I mean, you can, you can lo- win or lose a few runs that way for sure, but um, compared to the effect of, uh, of pitch framing, um, it's really no competition. 
Jason Stark had a piece a few days ago, and in it he mentioned that the Major League Baseball Rules Committee is thinking about raising the strike zone to the top of the knee. And a lot of pitch framing, a lot of the guys where they're able to frame it are the bottom of the strike zone guys. Will this limit, Mm -hmm. will that rule change limit the value of pitch framing? It may. Um, On the other hand, we're now going to have a new zone cut off to work with. And since the primary qualification of people who are considered to be good pitch framers is simply that they have a very quiet glove, uh, and many would say they're very good at anticipating where a pitch is going to be, I would think a lot of that skill would carry over. I think where it would be particularly uh, meaningful from a different standpoint would be that you have some people who I think are just sort of designed as catchers where they can really have good strength and ability to receive a pitch down low and kind of keep it closer to the core. Uh, it's possible that if the strike zone moves up to an area where the bottom is, you know, more central on a lot of people, uh, we may find that certain people are more comfortable um, getting pitches on the edges of the zone there than they would be um, where it is now, which is further down. And as always, uh, We never quite know what happens until we do it, and there's always an unintended consequence or two. Um, But I I suspect teams will continue to pay very close attention to it because the... um the potential return is uh, is so massive. You were able to apply the pitch framing data back to 1988. How were you able to do that? Yeah, so the way we were able to do that is that in 1988 was when uh, Major League Baseball started tracking uh, in a reliable way, individual balls and strikes within a pitch count. And so the most basic way that the mixed model runs is it simply says, okay, here, you know, they just basically, you know, who are the people on each play? Let's keep track of the contribution and the effect that they had. And so the model from, uh, and this would be up until before the pitch FX era, so around 2007, 2008, um, the model is actually pretty simple. So we just go through and we figure out which calls were balls and strikes and who the participants were, and we just sort of keep track. Um, once we get to pitch FX, which is that system that shows the balls and strikes on your screen or your uh, iPad or whatever, uh, much, more pre- much more precisely, the metric gets definitely more accurate because the fact is a lot of balls and strikes are pretty clearly going to be called balls or strikes by anybody. And so, you know, tracking, uh, if you track those and include the obvious ones with the borderline ones, um, you know, it's a lot noisier because at some point you're just giving a catcher or a pitcher credit for the fact that they threw strikes. Um, but with the pitch effects, we can really basically say, okay, this, this particular pitch had a 20% chance of getting called a strike and somehow you still made it happen. Um, and so we're, we start assigning value in a much more precise way Uh, really focusing on the pitches where framing is actually occurring as opposed to just treating all pitches the same, which they aren't. You're also one of the creators behind DRA, which is a fascinating new metric that Baseball Prospectus released last year. Tell me what you were hoping to accomplish with DRA last year, what DRA did that the old pitching metric that Baseball Prospectus used did not, and what you were hoping it would do that FIP or RA9 did not or does not. Okay. Uh, wow, that's a great big question. Um, but I can, uh, sure. So what, what our goal was, was that before last year, um, we had been using something called uh, FAIR run average or FAIR RA, uh, which was uh, something that Colin Wires had created. And what we were kind of observing was that uh, FAIR RA just was not 
taking off. And a lot of people had some criticisms of it. It had, um, you know, they thought it was unfair to ground ball pitchers, for example, and that it, it just, it, whatever it was setting out to do, it wasn't quite doing a good enough job to justify, you know, becoming part of the standard toolbox of everybody. And so that was kind of a consensus we felt around the league. And so the question kind of came, okay, well, if we want to replace it with something, what do we replace it with? Because um, it's easy to criticize something, as you know. It's a lot harder to come up with something that's better. And so I had actually already, um, after the pitch framing, I created um, what we call contextual FIP or CFIP, which was taking a mixed model and applying it to the, the components of um, FIP, fielding independent pitching, um, and basically took it and made it um, park-adjusted, opponent-adjusted, and things like that. And... Um, we kind of got together a, a rather amazing team of people, if I don't say so myself, uh, referring to all the people other than me, of course, but you had a, a Slack room uh, with uh, Harry Pavlidis and Rob Arthur and Dan Turkenkopf and uh, me and Gary Matthews and Greg Matthews, excuse me, and just a bunch of really bright people um, kind of sitting there figuring out, okay, um, what would we do? And the conclusion was that we would take this mixed modeling framework and sort of extend it to all plays rather than just, you know, um, uh, framed pitches or strikeouts or things like that. And then we would use that and try to create a context-adjusted metric. The idea being that at all times, uh, the metric is controlling for externalities and for the quality of your competition. And so that's what we went about and created uh, DRA, and that's why we think it's better. We think it really asks the question of how many runs did a pitcher deserve to give up, which is not the same thing as the ones they are charged with, as we are all well aware. And um, when we looked at the results and we looked at um, how it was scaling out, it, it just made a lot of sense to us. So uh, we... Uh, we were really pleased with how it did throughout the first year. And uh, then we made a few uh, revisions this year, largely to kind of address a lot of the really good comments um, we had gotten from the baseball community. And how long does DRA take to stabilize? DRA, let's see. I would not look at it in terms of, uh, say, month to month so much. I kind of tend to look at these from a perspective of year one to year two. And I would say, I mean, if we're going to consider stabilized to be about 0.5, uh, I would say at any given time, that's pretty much the relationship you're going to see correlation-wise between season one and season two. Now, when exactly during a season you can say, okay, I'm pretty much got the mark of this person, uh, that's really something I haven't looked at yet. But it is, it has become a very stable. Um, way to rate a player from year to year, which is pretty important and I think kind of amazing when you consider that, uh, you know, RA9 or ERA only as a correlation of about 0.1 from one year to the next. So we've really taken uh, what all of these events, many of which people were convinced we could never model, like balls in play and things like that, and uh, really sort of put it into a framework that seems to be pretty consistently measuring um, pitcher contributions in a way that at least makes sense to us. Do you think DRA is the preferred method at evaluating a pitcher for expected outcome for what they might do going forward and what they did going back? I think it is 
so far we have primarily viewed it as a retrospective thing. It's more to kind of tell you what a pitcher did. Um, last year we used CFIP um, for prediction, and we even used that for Pakoda this year, which were the baseball projections that we published at Baseball Prospectus. So traditionally we've had that divide. Um, you know, with the DRA this year and the consistency that it's showing, it's quite possible that we will conclude that it is pretty useful uh, for a going forward basis. But its primary reason for existence is to measure the value of players um, in terms of wins and such. And so that is always kind of been our focus. So I would say it definitely has a, a backward looking um, focus, but I think it's going to turn out to be more useful uh, forward looking than we would have expected. I do a lot of Hall of Fame research, so I'm constantly looking back at players' careers. I wanted to do that with a handful of players that DRA views differently than the FIP-based war metric founded Fangraphs and the RA9 founded Baseball Reference. Let's start with Tom Glavin. Tom Glavin has a career F4 of 66.9, FIP of 3.95. That translates to a FIP minus of 94, uh, B war of 74, ERA of 3.54, ERA plus of 118. So already between their, those two, they, they differ in, into how much better he was than average over the course of his career. DRA's warp, he's at 46.3 with a DRA of 4.72, DRA minus of 102. Who is the real Tom Glavin? That's a really good question um, because I sat down yesterday and, and looked at this, and it's actually kind of hard to do the Hall of Fame perspective on these things because you, um, you know, these people pitch so many innings that if you make an adjustment on what is considered valued and not, you can have some pretty dramatic swings. Um, but I will tell you that with Clavin, uh, what I saw when I dug into it yesterday afternoon was somewhat concerning. Uh, basically, he's a guy who is a pitch-to-contact guy, as we know. Um, and if you look at the quality of his ERA, um, and especially not so much the ERA, but if you, when I looked at what DRA was tracking on him over the years, I noticed that it was not giving him it was giving him credit in some years for generating, you know, for minimizing hits and generating outs. But in other years, it wasn't giving him very much credit at all, particularly throughout the 90s, which was a good portion of his heyday. And so I wondered why that would be. Um, and the most the best explanation, most likely explanation for when someone's not getting much credit uh, for generating outs is that they are playing with a really good defense. And so I went and checked and defensive metrics uh, you know, they're, they're a little crude back then, but you can still use total zone, which is something that I think a lot of people consider to be reasonable. And if you look under total zone, the Atlanta Braves were the number one defense uh, for years, <laughs> starting in like, say, 1992. And so we have a person who is pitching to contact and is doing so in front of the league's best defense for several years. And so that sort of, I think, leads to people saying things like, well, he's generating outs, and he, he could get people to swing at stuff outside the zone. And, and I'm sure a lot of that's true. But the real question is, when you're going to do a kind of component look at a player, um, you know, where does the credit belong? Uh, RE9-based metric says, well, it's basically the pitcher's, you know, it's, it's the pitcher's credit slash fault until we prove otherwise. Um, the FIP-based metric says, well, I'm only going to look at strikeouts, walks, hit batsmen, and home runs, and you know everything else just balances out, or I just can't consider it. And, and DRA is really the only one that I think 
goes very hard under the surface and looks at hits and outs. I mean, Biwar does have a defensive adjustment and it does ding him a little bit, but um, DRA is finding that he is, uh, in their view, generating, uh, benefiting more from a great defense than from truly um, making great plays uh, off the mound. Is it possible that he's just a guy that has bad peripherals but was able to beat them every year? Is it possible that at a certain point a guy may not strike people out and he may walk more people than you like, but if he's able to prevent runs every single year, which for the most part Glavin was, is it possible he's Mm -hmm. just a guy that beat them? Sure it is. Because, and I think a lot of people would say that they think that by the time you're looking at someone's career, you should only be looking at ERA and RA9 with the theory being, look, this person has now pitched for 15 to 20 years. Um, A lot of the things that should have been benefiting them have come and gone. And so we really should just look at it. And maybe we don't fully understand how this person uh, did what they did. Um, It's just that they did it. And that's what we celebrate. and, And I think that's fine. Um, the thing is, though, that I think it, once you decide that a lot of what Glavin was doing in the 90s is more due to his defense than due to him, um, his value plunges a lot. And it's not Glavin's fault that he paid in front of a good defense, and it's certainly not his fault that he sat there and said, well, I'm going to you know, take advantage of these guys. I'm going to put the ball where I can give them a chance to make a play. I mean, that's great. Um, but he, he was not doing things with the ball in play that were really, that seemed to be significantly different from others. And so the way DRA would look at it is, you know, you took advantage of a fantastic resource you had on your team. That's great. Um, but it would not tend to give him credit, uh, for when he's, um, generating outs and minimizing hits, uh, in front of a good defense. Another player I wanted to look at was Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown on F-War has a 76.5. That places him among the top 30 all-time, I believe. His FIP is 3.33. Mm-hmm. FIP minus of 78. Very strong numbers there. B-War of 68.5. ERA of 3.28. ERA plus of 127. Both really incredible numbers. Kevin Brown's a guy that when you first started looking at War, you're like, wow, this is a guy that belongs in the Hall of Fame. And you look at his... DRA warp, it's 44.9, DRA of 4.41, and a DRA minus of 98. Tell me about Kevin Brown and what you saw with him. Kevin Brown is interesting. I, I would say the same thing. I mean, he's a guy who, uh, from what I understand, was kind of a prickly fellow, and so not everyone was his biggest fan, but who really sort of did some really good things. Um, I think the problem with Kevin Brown, and the thing that I was sort of noticing when I was flipping through, was that a lot of his monster seasons he was really having in perhaps the most favorable place imaginable. Uh, you know, he had a big season in Florida. Um, he had a big season in San Diego, and then he had some really good seasons in Los Angeles and the Dodgers. And so I, I think the problem is that, you know, over time, uh, DRA is kind of saying, you know, you, you absolutely had some fantastic seasons, but you're consistently having them in places where I would expect you to be better than average. And so you kind of get dinged for that. And I, I think another thing that is easy to forget when we're looking at career numbers is that it, it really kind of depends where the adjustments are being made. If the adjustments are being made on a season where you were okay but not great, I don't think it really makes as much of a difference. But if the, if the seasons that are really driving your FIP or really driving your run prevention are also ones that have these sort of confounding factors, 
um, you know, they're going to start getting discounted. And, uh, you know, a 10% or 20% discount off a seven-win season is a lot more, it's going to hit you a lot harder um, than uh, off of a two- or three-win season. And that is the most obvious thing that I saw when I was doing it was that he was, uh, especially at the height of his career, kind of really beating the snot out of people in the junior league, uh, sorry, in the senior league, but in the junior league in terms of talent, and it was doing so uh, with some pretty favorable uh, environs. Another guy with some big swings, Rick Russell. And Russell's a guy who, honestly, that the sniff test does not favor to begin with. I think a lot of people, when they look at war leaderboards, are surprised to see Russell so high on fan graphs and on baseball ref. But he does have a FIP minus of 85. He does have an ERA plus of 114. His DRA minus, though, 101. What about Russell? Russell is fascinating. Um, I would be happy to concede that it is quite possible that Russell has some quality that I think is kind of eluding everybody's metric at the end of the day. I mean, he is a, he was a pitch to contact guy. I mean, that, that's who he was. Um, and, you know, from time to time, I did see that he had monster seasons where he would, for example, like in 77, which I think was his best season, he had this ridiculous uh, effect of whenever people were in scoring position, they would just almost never score. Um, he just was stranding people sort of left and right. And so that really, I think, made him look a lot better from a run prevention standpoint that year than he probably was because his career numbers, he wasn't really anything special with guys on base. Um, but the other thing is that, you know, for a pitch to contact guy, if he's truly doing something special with balls in play, which is really what you know, that sort of, how that sort of pitcher generates value. You should be seeing his um, batting average on balls in play be notably better than that of his fellow pitchers. Otherwise, if he's somewhere in the middle of the pack, then because those other pitchers have the same defense, you say, well, I'm not quite sure what you're doing, but you don't seem to be doing a uniquely better job of it than anybody else on your team. And when I was sort of flipping through the Cubs rotations from the 80s, God help me, um, I was uh, kind of noticing that, you know, he was pitching a ton of innings and kind of doing his job day after day after day. But, he, you know, his, his BABIPs were pretty much right in the middle of the rotation. So I'm kind of sitting here thinking, well, this person is just not generating a whole lot of extra outs or hits. Um, and so I think that's why, combined with the fact that he's not really running up on the strikeouts and walks, which DRA, t- like FIP, tends to favor very highly, um, I, I think at the end of the day, DRA kind of sees him as a bit of a compiler, um, to use one of the uh, buzzwords of Hall of Fame, uh, looking a guy who just went out there and did a good to good plus job year after year after year and had a good career. Um, but to the extent he did have some sort of ability to make things happen, um, that's beyond what we would normally look at. I, I think to some extent it's something that pretty much all of the metrics are just not uh, capturing right now. I like that Russell's an enigma. I like it. I, I, I think so, and I, I think it's also hard with these guys when we start going back into the 70s, because at that point, I mean, you're pretty much, especially if you're like me, you're 40 years old, you mean, you're, you're sort of asking around and asking people what they remember about this guy. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's not like you can go and pull up you know, a ton of um, MLB condensed games and kind of uh, look at what's going on. So, no, I think he is an enigma, and I think he had a really nice career, um, and uh, maybe he's 
still remains uh, better than any of us thought, and we have yet to discover why that is. A few more that DRA actually views more positively than the other sites. Kurt Schilling. Now, Schilling on the other sites is seen as an all-time great, and he is with Baseball Prospectus and DRA as well. His FIP minus is 76. His ERA plus is 127. But his DRA minus is 66, and I think he actually rates as the fifth best pitcher since 1950. He, to put that 66 DRA minus in perspective, Randy Johnson is 65. Roger Clemens is 77. Pedro Martinez is 62. DRA basically views Kurt Schilling as one of the greatest pitchers to ever play. Tell me why. Kurt Schilling has a really strange career. Um, and uh, I was talking uh, to the BP people about, actually about this list of people yesterday because I wanted to make sure I was not missing anything on, on all these guys. And you know, my, my impression from looking at his stats, and which other people agreed, was that Schilling really had sort of two stages of his career. Early on, he was very much kind of a pitch-to-contact guy. He didn't strike very many guys out. You know, he would still walk some guys. And he still generated some value, but, you know, he was a guy who was sort of just getting them getting out. And there's just not much of a focus on strikeouts. And what's just bizarre is that if you look at his career, around the late 90s, early 2000s, he suddenly turns into this monster in which he is striking out 10, 11 guys per, you know, per nine, which in some cases is almost double what he was doing before. I mean, I've never seen that. I mean, usually we have people coming in as flamethrowers and then they have to adjust to being sort of uh, crafty veterans, you know, toward the twilight of their career. And Schilling seems to have almost done the exact opposite. So he comes in and he is striking out as many, if not more people than almost anyone um, for several years in a row and he's doing it during the height of this, you know, steroid and league expansion era when run scoring was just exploding. So 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, I mean, he just, he just becomes this monster who runs up, um, you know, these strikeouts and everything else for years on end and, and was basically some version of that guy until the very end of his career. So uh, what, what I would say for Schilling is that the value – I mean, DRA really, because it is so sensitive to context and sensitive to the run scoring environment, um, it really benefits people like Pedro and Randy Johnson and uh, Schilling to have had some of their very best seasons um, during the time when run scoring was at its peak in baseball. And so that's what he's benefiting from. It wasn't just this bizarre mid-career, almost kind of Jose, Jose Batista-like transformation except for a pitcher, but it was the fact that he did it and then excelled during what I guess some would view as the most difficult time period in baseball to excel as a pitcher, um, in recent baseball anyway. And so that's why he gets the same sort of um, super boost that um, Pedro and Randy do because of not only how well he pitched, um, but how well he pitched during a certain time. Another guy on the positive swing is Javier Vasquez. Vasquez has a, a FIP minus of 88, a ERA plus of 105, but a DRA minus of 81, which is substantial. His uh, DRA war, I believe, is, in, is around 70, which is ahead mm-hmm. of many Hall of Famers. What does DRA see in Vasquez? Vasquez is really interesting. Um, he is somebody who is sort of uh, the kind of quintessential, you know, his peripherals are so good, why can't he just put it all together on the mound and make it happen? And uh, I haven't, 
you know, gone through, you know, all of his defenses and things like that to see what exactly is going on there. But I think the most important things for Vasquez are is that he, you know, he had a 14-year career. So to the extent that he was, in fact, exhibiting good pitching fundamentals, um, you know, he had a long time to multiply that. Um, but I, the thing about him is his strikeout-to-walk ratio. Um, his strikeout-to-walk ratio is actually the same, basically, as Greg Maddox. So, and it is almost as, it is, I think, even maybe a little, it's comparable to Maddox, and it's better than Randy Johnson. So he really was a guy who was not getting people on base with free passes and was striking out a fair number of guys. Not necessarily the same huge strikeout numbers we see now, but for his for his time and when he was pitching, he was he was really doing a great uh, a great job. So you know, and the other thing is that he was one of these pitchers who was pretty good year in and year out. With a lot of these other pitchers, we see people who sort of, uh, you know, for a couple of years, they kind of get hurt or they disappear or they do something else. I mean, Vasquez is a guy who is just, you know, putting up seven wins, eight wins, and then he just has a whole bunch of seasons where it's like four wins, four wins, five wins, four wins, five wins, four wins, six wins. And, uh, you know, over 14 years of just being a really, really good sort of top of the rotation, even if you're not, uh, you know, an ace, so to say, so to speak, um, you, you just compile a lot of value. And so that's why I think FIP likes him uh, a fair amount, much more than uh, his results would seem to indicate. And, um, and DRA really uh, has a similar and even stronger opinion because a pitcher who um, is striking out that many guys and putting that few people on base through the free pass um, the likelihood that they end up being a truly below average pitcher is pretty low. And so from DRA's perspective, he's a guy who frankly just deserved a lot better. The last guy I asked you to look at was Scott Sanderson, who to me was perhaps the most uh, disturbing name on the list. Uh, I think he's 35th on the new DRA leaders list, which does only go back to 1950. So this does not include Walter Johnson or Lefty Grove or anyone like that. It's it's players of the integration era. But uh, Scott Sanderson's FIP minus 98, his ERA plus 102. So neither FIP or ERA, RA9, see him as much more than average. Uh, DRA... Uh-huh. 82, 82 uh, with the DRA minus, which sees him as considerably better than average. Tell me about Scott Sanderson. Yeah. Scott Sanderson, um, uh, I, I will tell you that when you pointed out Scott Sanderson, uh, my heart sank uh, because I had not noticed him before or paid much attention. Uh, he's not somebody who was really a household name by any means when I was um, paying attention to baseball in my first go around. So I sat here and said, oh, dear, you know, how did this happen? Who's this guy? Um, and then I started looking further, and what I noticed was that um, he was a pitch-to-contact guy. And um, so, in other words, he's sort of like, you know, Reschel in that sense. But unlike, the, unlike Reschel, when I go and I look at um, his hit runs and his outruns, so we track, um, you know, both the extent to which you're minimizing damage on hits in terms of the quality of hits and also how many outs you're generating – um, Sanderson is sort of unique in that year after year after year, he is limiting the quality of contact and increasing the number of outs over what we would expect. And so it, he seems to have been a sort of soft, soft, uh, what do we call it? Um, soft contact specialist. I've heard that term 
you know, kind of more of a kind of a Glavin sort of type in that regard. Um, and so he is just doing amazing things uh, with balls in play and in limiting the damage. And that is uh, exactly the sort of thing that, of course, FIP would, would not pick up on. And it's also the same thing that ERA would not pick up on to the extent that uh, other people on the team are somehow complicating this task. I mean, it could be bad framing. It could be uh, bad defense. It could be a lot of things. Uh, certainly the team he was playing on in the, um, uh, on the, I believe it was the Cubs in the 80s. Um, but he, you know, those, those teams had absolutely awful, abysmal defense. So uh, certainly to the extent he's even having an average uh, put out rate, he's going to get a lot of credit for that. So the story of Sanderson um, is, uh, as far as I can tell, that he was just a really good weak contact generating guy. And if there's any quality that I think is easy to miss with a lot of the uh, exist metrics that predated uh, DRA, um, that's probably one they're not going to pick up on. And uh, uh, so I think that's largely the story of, of Scott Sanderson. That's some fascinating stuff right there. Before I let you go, I want to ask you about the current state of defensive metrics. I saw you tweet out the other day that uh, someone was comparing players and you, you you said that they would rather use DRS than use ER. What do you see as the primary differences between defensive run saves and ultimate zone rating? It's hard to say um, because in terms of why they're different or how they're different, uh, only because um, the... Uh, we don't have access to, especially for DRS, we really don't have access to the inner workings of it or how they compile things on a play-by-play basis. But um, one of the ways that I look at a metric to see whether it's truly measuring something real is year-to-year consistency. Uh, And in fact, year-to-year consistency is pretty much the only metric you have when the only thing you're getting from a company or a website is basically the annual total which is all that I'm getting for, for UZR uh, and for DRS. UZR is a little more open as to what's going on. I think it was kind of developed out in the open, but, you know, similar problem. And regardless of how they were developed or whatever, I mean, the, the bottom line is this. If you are truly measuring a skill, if, if there is such a thing as a good defender and a bad defender, which I'm pretty sure most of us would accept, then you should be rating similar people as really good or really bad defenders from year to year. And if you're jumping all over the place, then the chance is, chances are that you are measuring primarily noise uh, rather than really se- separating out contributions. And so what I did uh, eh, about two months ago when I was uh, starting to look at sort of defensive metrics a bit was I did a year-to-year comparison of DRS and, um, and UZR. And and what I found was, and this would be on the rate, of course, we wouldn't go by total runs because that varies by opportunities and how many you know, balls you got and everything else, but just the rate, you know, for the number of plays you were on the field, what were the number of runs saved or given up that you were rated? And when I did that, I found that DRS, and I basically went year to year from 2010 up to 2015. So it's like, you know, five years worth of, um, you know, year one, year two, and just sort of put them all together and compared. And uh, DRS had a correlation, which year-to-year correlation, which was up around 0.4 or 0.45 or something, which was really good. Um, I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised. And when we did the same thing for UZR, the year-to-year correlation was about 0.15. 
which sets off a major alarm bell for me. Um, it's not something that I would write about yet. Um, I would probably make sure that I would check with the authors of those metrics and make sure that I wasn't missing something. Um, but as a purely sort of global way to look at a couple of statistics and, and analyze them, um, that's what I did. And, uh, you know, right now, when I'm seeing something like that, that concerns me quite a bit about um, whether UZR on a year-to-year basis is measuring, um, you know, the right things or is measuring them in a way that is, um, you know, uh, as reliable as we would like. Um, I will offer you a caveat to this, though, is that I have no idea what DRS is doing. I mean, they say that, you know, they talk about how they scout things and they award points for plays. Um, You know, if to some extent they are taking into account prior information when they make these determinations, for example, if they're saying, okay, so-and-so was great last year, so we're going to kind of take that into account, well, obviously you're going to have, you're going to do much better uh, on a test like this if that's what you're doing. Um, If that's not what they're doing and they're purely just doing it from a consistent metric uh, year to year, then um, then they're doing a great job. Um, But uh, I can't really say at this point why one was significantly better than the other, only that they are um, in that particular test that I ran. And uh, so I I just saw a huge difference. And what about StatCast integration? Will we eventually see StatCast data reflect defensive metrics across all three sites? Uh, If it becomes available in public, uh, I think so. Um, But, uh, you know, integrating that once we have it would be would be fantastic, uh, because you you really get two things uh, in terms of fielder data, you get to know where they how close they were to the ball to begin with, which tells you what a good job, how good of a job the team is doing in positioning their fielders. And it also, of course, tells you how quickly and how much ground they're able to cover once the play starts. So I do think, uh, I'm sure that the teams are already doing this privately by themselves because they can, um, but yes, I would like to think that there will be some sort of um, uh, integration of that, and hopefully it's something that we can all kind of agree on and share uh, rather than having multiple versions of it showing up at different places, because I'm sure everyone would be grateful uh, if we were able to accomplish that. You've been listening to Jonathan Judge. Jonathan is a senior member of the Baseball Prospectus Stats team. You can give Jonathan a follow on Twitter at Bach Law, that's B-A-C-H-L-A-W, and read his excellent work at Baseball Prospectus. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Thanks, Rob. It was great.